Hello, everybody. You're very welcome to the Open Training College podcast series. My name is Neve McAvoy, and today I'm talking with Lauren Brennan, who runs a volunteer service within a direct provision service in the southeast of Ireland. The refugee sector is indeed a challenging sector, and while you may not work in a direct provision centre, you are likely to encounter refugees and asylum seekers in other social care sectors or even in your own personal life. It's worth remembering that refugees and asylum seekers are a disadvantaged group within our society. And unfortunately for many, their presence in some communities can trigger racist responses. And while this is not everyone's experience, it is certainly the experience of some asylum seekers and refugees. And having an awareness of the impact of such racist behaviour is important for all of us to be aware of. In addition, being aware of the many challenges that this particular cohort can experience, both in relation to their current experiences within the direct provision service and in relation to their history and how this can impact on their current situation is also very important for a social care worker or indeed any civilian to be aware of. This particular podcast on direct provision and refugees and asylum seekers, it doesn't have much positivity within it. And if you find you are impacted or affected by any of the content of this podcast, then I ask you to please get in contact with me or with your supervisor or indeed with any other trusted adult in your life for guidance and support. You're very welcome to our podcast. Today, I am delighted to have Lauren Brennan with me. Lauren works with a particular client group of asylum seekers and refugees. So, Lauren, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. Can I ask you to start off, please, by just giving us an overview of the client group that you work with and how they came to be in? So, I run a volunteer based um, group that supports people living within a direct provision center in Wexford. Um, so people come to us in a lot of different ways. Some people are here, they would have applied for their refugee status from their own country and then travelled here once they were accepted. But for most people, they arrive here essentially what would be considered illegally. They arrived claiming um, to ask for asylum. Um, so they've come from multiple countries. We currently have people from all over Africa, Georgia. Um, we had a guy from everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> We have we have around we have around a hundred people in the hotel at the moment, um, and we've had I think close on uh, two hundred people through the hotel in the last year. Wow, that is a lot. Yeah, we've also been designated as a hotel for uh, primarily for families, so we have that's why there it seems like so many because we would have families of maybe one or two adults and two or three children up to four children in in a room. And what brings the individuals? to Ireland in the first place. Is that something that we can talk about? So for there's there's multiple different reasons that you can claim asylum um in Ireland. So um war obviously being um the main one that most people would know about. Um there's also personal prosecution for personal beliefs or sexual orientation. There's also uh poverty is is a big reason that people come here as well. Um and political unrest. A lot of people political unrest is the one that it's a bit of a different one. So for a lot of people, for political unrest, they wouldn't necessarily be granted asylum as they would be granted something called a remain to stay, which will allow them to stay within Ireland for, say, up to a year, and then their case will be reviewed, and if the political unrest has been resolved in 
in their country, it can be provoked. Okay, so they'll have to go home. And would poverty, you, you mentioned poverty is one of the reasons that might bring people to be in the situation of asylum seeker or refugee status. Would poverty continue to be an issue for them when they are in the country and in the system until they have been processed out? Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, asylum seekers and refugees in this country receive a standard payment of €38.80 per week. Okay, and they're not allowed to work? No, they're not allowed to work for a, a minimum of six months, then they can apply for their work permit, but they are still very limited in what they're allowed to do and how many hours they're allowed to work even after that. Yeah, and so they get their 38 euros a week, and that is to cover, what, what does that have to cover? Like their food and accommodation is provided by the state, is that correct? Yeah. And what about clothing, transport? Does that have to come out of the 38 euros or do you rely on the goodwill yeah. of the public? Well, yeah, a mixture of that coming out of the, between um, donations and the goodwill of the public and their, their money that they receive, all public, any transport or unless they're moving to another centre or something like that, then the transport will be provided. But for their own personal reasons, all of that will be considered to be paid for, as well as toiletries and anything else that they may need on a daily basis. Toiletries are provided, are they? No. Not oh, they're not. No, they will be expected to pay for toiletries and sanitary products themselves as well. Out of that 38 euros? Out of that 38 euros. But that's quite a challenge, isn't it? It is. For most people, they depend very heavily on volunteer groups like ourselves and mm -hmm. public donations. We're very lucky with where I am because the hotel staff are fantastic and they really do go above and beyond. But unfortunately, for the vast majority, direct provision centres are a really horrible place to be. Yeah. I, I can imagine. I, I'm familiar with the one that, that you work in, being, being local enough to do it myself. Um, but in terms of then of schooling, you mentioned that you have families. So I know some of the children attend the local national school. But are they experiencing disadvantage then in getting their uniforms and their books? Or how does that work for them? Or do they have to put that out of the 38 euros as well? I'm actually not entirely sure. I think some of that has been provided now. When we first opened, there was a lot of um, confusion about a lot of things. I have, um, I basically I walked into the hotel the day it opened. Um, a friend of mine, no pressure then. <laughs> runs a, um, she runs a support group for asylum seekers in Wicklow, and she called me to inform me that one of the ladies she was looking after was being moved to Coretown and would I keep an eye on her. Right. Um, when I met her the day she arrived, she informed me that there was another 50 people in the hotel, so. I went in and met the owner. So there was a lot of confusion there. We were all very new to it and we had to kind of learn as we were going. Um, so we did, there were donations of school uniforms and things like that to begin with. But as far as I know, the last group that came in, there was funds provided um, as there would be for anybody else who was here and underprivileged that there would be funds provided to pay for school uniforms and supplies. And with the guys that you support in the centre, we'll call it, I suppose, um, is social exclusion an issue for the guys? And I can imagine if they only have 38 year olds a week that are taken in social activities, I know with COVID now that has been restricted even more, but before COVID, um, would they have even been able to get involved in anything going on locally? Or do they experience um, social experience? Again, we've been very lucky here in Wexford, in, in, in Gorey in particular. Um, the local groups have been very, very welcoming. The local sports team in Coretown, um, they opened up their doors and said that any child or adult that wanted to play soccer from the hotel, they would provide them with a uniform and they 
could come free of charge to the club. Um, yeah, we're very lucky. Even the local leisure centre has done so. Everyone has tried very hard to make everybody welcome. Um, but I know that for most, again, for most asylum seekers and direct provision around the country, it's very, very isolating. Um, they usually tend to put the direct provision centres in a very isolated area as well. A lot of times they would be in a hotel that would could be miles outside of the town. Um, I suppose one of the worst cases and the most obvious one is um, Mount Trenchard that was recently shut down, which was outside of Poynes in County Limerick. And um, that would have been widely known as the worst direct provision centre in Ireland. I suppose you're lucky then in that where you guys are based, you're in the, the centre of, albeit a small village, but it's a, a busy village. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's good that there's there isn't social exclusion happening for, for your guys. Is marginalisation something that would be an issue for the guys that you work with? Or are they on the margins of society, I suppose? I mean, in one sense, I suppose it's, it's it, yes, in the sense that they, they obviously are not interacting with, for adults in particular, I think the children, I think a lot of people make a lot of effort in the groups and things, they make a lot of effort for the children. For the adults, I think it's harder in particular, um, a lot of the adults wouldn't necessarily have English as a first language or have good English to be able to communicate, um, which makes things very difficult for them. And you add in the fact that, like you say, they have very little funds. They're not going out for dinner with friends like other families would probably yeah. be. And you mentioned that a lot wouldn't have English as their first language. Is there English language classes? There is. There is, yeah. We we, um, we work very closely, myself work very closely with um, Wexford Local Development and the Community Support Officer for them. Um, we also work quite closely with Places of Sanctuary. And so between the different groups and ourselves, um, we have organised Wexford Local Development organised. They go to the Adult Education School in Gorey and they have English classes regularly since they arrived with us. But we did actually have a lady who arrived with us and she had been in the country almost a year. She'd been to eight different hotels in that time and she did not speak, she was never offered an English class until she arrived with us and she did not speak a single word of English. Oh my goodness, that would have been eight months. So eight months, yeah. Malian lady, no English whatsoever. That is incredibly difficult. Really yeah. is incredibly difficult. So they're not permitted to seek employment before six months being in the country, is it? So they have been in the country six months before they can go seek employment. Yeah. And that, is that, that's based on the fact that their work they have to fill out a they have to fill out an employment form and apply to be allowed to gain a work permit first. Right. So it's only and if the work permit is approved. And is that a challenge to get a work permit uh, approved? From what I've seen from people, it's more the wait that's difficult. Is actually applying once they're once they've arrived and everything is going with their case, everything is going fine. If there's an issue with their case, it can be withheld. Um, right. But if everything is going ahead with their case and every, they've been living in the country for six months, then usually I've, I've yet to see someone have it refused unless there was a separate issue. Right. And how long roughly would it take for, once they put in the application for the work permit, how long would it take for the work permit to come back to them? It takes about a month or so, four to six weeks as standard with any government procedure, really. And um, they're usually encouraged to fill out the form and have it sent off by the time they've been here around five months. Okay, and then in terms of actually seeking employment and getting employment, is that something that's a challenge or is, is it, dare I say, relatively easy? No, I, I would say that's generally something of a challenge, primarily down to location. Um, as I said, they're usually um, in quite isolated 
small towns trying to find work would be quite difficult at the best of the times and then if they do find it outside they have to deal with being able to get transport in and out of work every day as well and um, you know yourself like it's very hard to live out in a country out in the in a rural area where most of these direct provision centers are and not have a car which they're not allowed to have a driving license and as you mentioned there the, the people who came last summer have been moved does that happen often that they they move them regularly from one center to another very 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 often and um, anyone who if, if you have a look at our facebook page and um, you will see that there were a lot of posts and videos from myself at this um around this time last year i think it was june or july last year and yeah, um, we actually held a protest because yeah. they out of the blue on next to no notice moved 22 of our residents basically overnight and do we know what the rationale for that frequent moving is the reason for it here in core town was that um the core town hotel had been sectioned off as a hotel that would be perfect for families as there were schools in the area and so they removed the vast majority of single people, single adults were moved. Um, so the only people that really stayed, we had, I think, four single adults remained, and the rest were only, the only people that were left after that were people that already had children with us, um, and families were moved in in their place. But it's very common for multiple reasons around the country to be moved. Direct provision centres, the vast majority of them are emergency direct provision centres. And um, the general rules for these are that nobody should be in them for more than six months because they are not regulated as a full-time center but they're so full in the full-time centers and there are so many people that it doesn't usually happen um honestly from what i've seen primarily it seems to be that if you move people around enough from isolated area to isolated area people don't notice how long they've been there you could be in an emergency direct provision centre for up to two years before you got before you get a permanent centre. And as I said, I've had residents that have been to eight different hotels in as many months. That doesn't really help with the social inclusion, does it? You know, if, if people are just getting used to an area, and I mean, you think of it in our own lives as well. You need at least six months to get used to an area. Um, but if you're being moved quite regularly, it's very, very unsettling. The Irish government is very, they're very open about the fact that they, they work on a push-pull system here. They, it's not hidden that it's purposely made very difficult to seek asylum in Ireland in order to discourage too many people from arriving. Okay, right, so that's the rationale. That is a lot of the rationale, yes, I think yeah. they just they move people if and when they see fit. But terrible for the people who are in the system, very unsettling and... Um... Especially for people coming from um, countries where there has in war and um, we had a, a particular resident who was from Palestine and um, he had spent his entire life in Palestine he had never left um, himself he, he had had to leave his wife and his seven children behind to come here to seek asylum and risked his life to leave Palestine and he was terrified that they were going to transfer him to a city because he had never been outside he had never been in a city and it was very, very traumatic for him to be moved from us. He arrived with us. He was with us for a few months and he was just beginning to be comfortable and to start to come out of himself a little when he was moved. And that was his biggest fear was that he was going to end up in a big city and he wouldn't be able to handle it because he had never seen one before. And I mean, as, as you mentioned there, the trust, because in any area of social care, building up trust is, with, with people that you work with is a, is a really important, massive part of the job. So if the guys get moved after a few months, 
do they ever experience that level of, of trust or, or confidence in staff? It, it has to be incredibly difficult for them. It, it is, and honestly, from my experience speaking to um, people living in direct provision centres around the country, there is no trust in the staff to begin with. The staff is there to do their job, and they do the very bare minimum in most direct provision centres. Most people, they, they have very little connections here, and they are they are constantly moved. They like say they may not speak a lot of English. They're usually in direct provision centres. They're not even encouraged to spend time in in communal areas other than eating they're basically told you're in your room or you're out they they are not encouraged to sit around talking to each other even inside the hotel it's very very difficult isn't it it's it, on it, the more you learn about it the worse it gets unfortunately there's very little good news in direct provision inequality is definitely an issue for the people that you support then I, I would say not at the risk of putting words in your mouth but from what oh, you're saying it's most definitely and you, you make a fuss or you cause an issue and one call from a manager of a hotel and you'll be moved again. So I suppose people are afraid to stand up for themselves, really? Oh, very much so. They are afraid to rock the boat. They are afraid to say anything negative in case it was, to, you know, they were put down as a, they moved too many times and they're afraid that then it's going to be put down, that they're a trouble causer and it's going to affect their claim to asylum. That's not very empowering for people. Have you ever seen examples of, or, you know, obviously confidentiality and all that, so we're not going to look for names or anything, but have you ever seen it happen where somebody has complained and they have been moved, or do you know of cases where it yeah. has happened? Or, yeah. One of our residents who was who was moved from us last year um, was moved to another residential area. It was moved to another direct provision centre. We won't mention names or where he was. Um, but essentially, there was a minor incident where he went down for his dinner and there was a, he picked up a fork out of the tray as they have them and it was dirty. So he says to the girl, I'll just leave it here to the side for you because that one's still dirty. Obviously, the dishwasher hadn't washed it, whatever. And she became quite aggressive because he refused to put the dirty fork back in with the clean ones. It was it was a very ridiculous situation. Um, luckily, because he had been with us for protests and stuff, he knew enough to try record as much as he could and had sent me videos. Um, he was then called down to speak to the manager, which he managed to fully record because he was prepared, prepared for it. And the manager threatened to call the police. And two days later, he was shipped to another direct provision centre. Over a dirty fork. Over arguing with a member of staff over it, essentially. But this member of staff was shouting expletives at him because he refused to put dirty cutlery back with the clean. So now, that would be one of the worst really situations, obviously. <laughs> but um, I, I hope it does, that doesn't happen as often as, as it does. It was the only case I personally have heard, uh, have proof of and have seen. But you hear a million similar stories like it when you work with asylum seekers, unfortunately. Yeah, it really highlights how they're they're treated you know, unequally. You know that there's there's a yeah. there's an inequality in the system or in the system. In terms of empowering the people, then we'll just talk about that a little, I suppose. Um, would you do work with the guys on employment and being self advocates, or is that something that probably doesn't happen? And kind of. Well, we do our best to do as much as we can. Um, we we have had uh seminars where we would have the guards come and they talk to everybody about the laws here and that they can't be prosecuted for their sexuality, they can't be prosecuted. 
just because obviously our laws would differ as well in some ways it's little things like you know you also cannot take your children here and things like that so we would have educational talks that would teach them that you know you can't be discriminated against for the color of your skin or your race or your religion we also can't do these things here that may be legal to do in your own country so just to give everybody um sort of a heads up um we have also last year i took a group of our asylum seekers out to dublin to the asylum seekers empowerment conference which was the first um of its kind to be run um by a another asylum seekers empowerment charity um, that are working towards um changing direct provision um so we have done a few things like that we, we try at the moment we have some of our members are currently in the places of sanctuary that they call them now i'll try and remember um, it's an advocacy program essentially where they they train them to speak because we are currently pushing for gory to be the first town of sanctuary registered in ireland right and what would that involve now because I'm, I'm sure i haven't myself haven't heard of it so i'm sure we're not our students so we're putting you on the spot now we're going to ask you to look over here and what this means so places of sanctuary or as they were originally known was city of sanctuary um, so they started in the UK and it started with a group of people who wanted to basically start a welcoming committee for asylum seekers coming into their town. And um, from there it grew and there are now I think over 50 cities of sanctuary within the UK. Um, and although places of sanctuary are here in Ireland, there isn't an official registered place of sanctuary town in Ireland. So Gory would be the first to officially register, but they they support asylum seekers. They also have a program where universities give grants and scholarships to asylum seekers. And you can apply for, as, as an asylum seeker, you can apply for a place of sanctuary scholarship. So yeah, they, they do a lot of good. And so that's what we're doing at the moment is we're, we're pushing it. But we want, it's important that they have that empowerment that the, the asylum seekers themselves, the, the residents of the hotel are the ones they go to the council, they put their case forward, and that they get their sanctuary status for themselves. So that's what we're training them to do, is to be able to speak to councillors, essentially, and put their point across in the correct way. And when would you hope to have that process submitted, completed? Unfortunately, well, there's been a lot of delays in it. There was a couple of meetings. Um, where we were we were arranging things and things were just sort of starting to click into place and jobs started to get done and then obviously the pandemic came so everything has been put on hold for the moment and I'm not entirely sure what the timeline will be on that from here. But it's, it's in it's in process. It's definitely in process and nobody's given up on it anytime soon. <laughs> well, we'll keep an eye on the Facebook page for updates on that one. It's a very interesting one. So advocacy, we've talked a little bit about advocacy and, and there is work being done with the guys in relation to building up their advocacy skills. I would imagine when they come into the service first though that their experiences, probably all of, of those things that we've talked about are quite negative in that they wouldn't have, have experienced a really much positive um, inclusion or they wouldn't have experienced much positive equality treatment. They probably uh, maybe are not very strong self-advocates. I know you're saying you're only in the centre a year, um, or the centre has only been open for a year. Have you seen people advance through and, and come on in Eastern Bounds, I suppose, to develop those skills? Have you seen people to come out of poverty, to get employment, to become a self-advocate? Has that happened for any of the guys that you've either worked with personally, or do you know of anyone who has 
come through and come out the other side and have a great story to tell? There are definitely people. I mean, I was very lucky, actually. I'm currently studying. I'm actually currently doing my community studies degree right now. And um, actually, our last class before the quarantine was called, we were very lucky. And we had two people come out to talk to us who work for places of sanctuary. And both of the people that came out were previously asylum seekers here in Ireland. Wow. And they did exactly that. They worked their way through. There are there are a lot of people that do work their way through the system. Um, and they do come out the other side. We have quite a few people within the Core Town Hotel who are currently in um, college or, or in university and studying. Um, and we do have a couple of people who are currently working. And, you know, we we also have a few people that came and were very, very good self-advocates to begin with. We have them. Um, there's a, a Syrian family that comes to mind that they were they're very, very intelligent people. Um, where they came from, they would have been... Well, I imagine they would have been quite well off. Their son speaks at five, speaks perfect English. He went to an American school in Syria. Um, yes, they actually came to us via Dubai, where they were living for a while first. So they're, they're both very well-spoken. And, um, yeah, they, I, I have no doubts that they will make exactly what they want of this. They will make a good life for themselves here. Um, it is more the, the members that come from... Um, you know, there, I think people forget that, you know, asylum seekers can come from very affluent families in their own country. So, oh, you know, and those people, you you know, you kind of, you know from them, they, they've come with that confidence of knowing that they they are intelligent, they have something to offer. It's, it's the people that come from poverty, the people that come from countries in particular, the people that, again, don't have English when they arrive, that, that it's very easy for them to disappear into the system, unfortunately. Yeah, so, so even with that, even let's we'll say the skills that the person has or the background that they're coming from, that can amount to inequality in the direct provision system itself. So is it fair to say it's not a, a, a fair system for people or is that being a bit... The system itself doesn't change. Um, honestly, the system itself doesn't change. It's more to do with, um, obviously, if you have good English and you're quite self-aware and self-confident, then they have the confidence to ask for what they need from people like myself, from volunteers. There are residents who come who it would take, it has taken me days or weeks of sitting and talking and getting to know them before they would feel even able to ask me for something simple. Yeah. Um, and those those are the people that very quickly disappear. You know, those are the people that, that they they find it a, a difficulty here. But for the the general system, there's nothing you can do. Everybody is exactly the same, unfortunately. And from and this is probably a very broad question, but from the time a person comes into Ireland and enters the system, how long can it take? What would be the shortest length of time it would take for somebody to get through the system? To go from asylum seeker to refugee status to legally able to work? Well, <laughs> that's the question, isn't it? I think the official line is up to two years. The reality is that a vast amount of people can spend up to 10 years in direct provision. Oh, wow, 10 years. Yeah, nine to 10 years is the average, the average length of time. Um, it's, it's a long, long time to get out of it. But I think, as I say, it could take up to two years just for their meeting. What's that? For their, it's what, what they call their big meeting. So um, basically how it works is you arrive in the country and you'll be taken for what they say. I learned all of this from residents, so I don't have official names for things, but they have what they call their small meeting. Um, 
which is where they're taken in the airport and they're asked why they're here. They say that they're claiming for asylum, etc. They will take their passport, their driving license, um, and they're given back photocopies. That happens in the airport. Their their passport will be removed from them. And we actually had a resident, um, a lady that arrived a couple of months ago, who was so scared when she was taken at the airport that she arrived with us with none of her personal belongings because she forgot to go and collect her luggage from the luggage claim. And she got off the plane and was escorted by two guards to a room. Um, so that's what they call their small meeting, and that's essentially where they get the basic information of why they're here and why why they want to claim asylum here. And like they they will they'll remove things, they'll take like their passport and their birth certs or anything like that to go on file. Um, then they could be here. I think the average time they aim for is something like nine months. I think is what they say they try to, but it could take up to two years then for them to have what they call their big meeting, which is where they're called to Dublin to an official meeting. Um, and that can last i think maybe the guy says to me that can last up to eight hours that is a honest to god thrilling of every single detail and they have to make sure every single detail they say in that meeting matches what they told them when they arrived in the country however long ago that was as well right if there are discrepancies they're considered to be lying um, one of our women recently had um, had her big meeting um, a couple of months ago before the pandemic there, and um, she is from she's from Zimbabwe. Um, now, I know a lot of people don't know about Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is in severe poverty. There is no electricity. There's no running water. They don't even have their own money in Zimbabwe. The money that is in Zimbabwe is essentially only useful in Zimbabwe. You can't exchange it for all the money. It's essentially vouchers that are only good in that country they don't have their own currency they are so poor and she sat in that room and was asked repeatedly like what would happen if i sent you home i don't believe you basically and that's what they do they try to push and push and get you to admit that you're lying or to lose your temper that's quite difficult for people especially if they're coming from a vulnerable position anyway yeah, yeah. quite challenging um, so, yeah, that's not really a very um, positive picture of people's experiences, <laughs> unfortunately. Unfortunately, no. There are very, very few positive experiences in direct provision, you know, and that's, that's, before, you get into, that's before you get into the issues within direct provision centres and the residents themselves. Um, I, know, um, I know a guy who, he was in direct provision here. I think he was in direct provision in Galway. And his major issue was here was he was here from South Africa to seek asylum on a personal basis because he was LGBTQ. Right. And unfortunately, those issues with things like um, being LGBT don't end when you come into Ireland, because you are then placed in a direct provision centre with over a hundred people that primarily share the same views as the country you've just come from. And then you have discrimination and bullying issues within direct provision centres. Yeah, because the person's culture comes with them. Yeah, so that's and there's there's no I suppose allowances for want of a better phrase um, made for that, is there? If somebody comes in with uh, under LGBT, they're not placed in a specific location or anything. It's just no, there are no specific LGBT friendly direct provision centres. No. No. They essentially, if you're complaining, if you if you complained about it, you'd be moved somewhere else in the hope that would be better. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it's, it's, it's the victim that's still suffering again. It's him that's made to move again. Yeah, yeah. Quite a, quite a challenge. So what would be the role of the staff then in these um, direct provision centres? What, what, what would a typical day for you be like, Lord? Well, myself, I, like I say, I, I myself wouldn't be staffing a direct provision centre, so what I would do would be totally different. Right. Um, I primarily, I run the Facebook page, I manage donations, um, and the, I manage anything that the residents ask me to do. So anything from practising their English conversational skills to helping them to fill out forms that the staff might not necessarily have time to do, um, to... I mean, if they ask me, if they tell me they want to do ballet, I try to find a ballet class that will make allowances and, and allow them in, you know. That's, that's essentially all I do. I'm here to make their stay here as comfortable as possible and to help them to be included as much as possible. So trying to increase or enhance their quality of life, I suppose, really? Essentially, yes. That's, that's exactly what we're here for. We're here to try and just, just help people to, to be able to have connections and make make friendships and have some semblance of a life while they're here with us in direct provision until they're moved on or, or they get to leave. And for it's other staff possible. Yeah, for other staff in the direct provision centres, what what would their role be? What would So primarily most of the direct provision centres are run by hotel staff. The hotel staff that ran the hotel previously to it being a direct provision centre remain the staff in direct provision. There is no staff appointed by government in any way, shape, or form that are there to look after the well-being of residents. So this week they could be making beds for tourists, and next week they are working with refugees and asylum seekers. Exactly. Say so you're talking, you're talking a hotel manager, a receptionist, answer the phones, and a chef. Okay. And would those hotel staff receive? Any training, I suppose, or any guidance on dealing with, with people who are coming from very vulnerable situations and who would be quite vulnerable individuals? Is there no. any training? No? no. Interesting. This is, this is one of the big issues of being pulled up in direct provision centres around the country, is that, like, as you said, you know, people who are trained to make beds and manage tourists are now managing hotels filled with people who are coming from situations where you know they they need a professional who knows what they're dealing with you've got children you've got men and women with ptsd and other um psychological issues coming from where they've come from and you're dealing with a hotel manager on a daily basis i would imagine that that a lot of the guys that would come through the, the direct provision service would be in need of some form of counselling, that they would come from a, a traumatic background, like you, you've mentioned war, you've mentioned poverty, um, LGBT issues, um, we're all probably familiar with the female genital mutilation um, issues that, that people have, have escaped from, so they'd be quite traumatic. Um, is there any sort of support offered to the people in the service? Uh, their support is considered to be the same as ours. They're, they're considered, if they have psychological issues, if they feel like they need help or counselling, then they're to go to a GP the same as us, which means the same as us, they could be waiting up to four years to see anybody, particularly in Wexford where mental health services are at an all-time low. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, ideally, obviously, the, the thing would be to, to be able to set people up for the life when they arrive here. There is, um, there's something called the Refugee Resettlement Programme. Um, we actually had one in Gory a couple of years ago. Um, unfortunately, the way that programme works is that 1% of refugees who register as refugees before they leave their country get on that programme. And it's essentially a checklist of, you know, we'll take 10 men, we'll take 20 children, we'll take 10 people with disabilities. And somebody would go to that country and essentially handpick the 1%. And they arrive in this country, they are given houses, they are given a social care worker for the year, they are given a doctor's, they are set up with all of the supports you would expect in order for them to be able to integrate and make a life here. But for the other 99%, not including people that arrive without any papers just as asylum seekers you're talking hundreds of people a year they get stuck in direct provision and um, now obviously we're in the middle of a, a huge housing crisis and have been for some time here in ireland but you know a, a few small changes would make huge differences to these people's lives having a social care worker within the di each direct provision center that people could go to for support and for help would be fantastic would make a big difference if they were allowed to work once they entered the country instead of having to sit around for six months, especially for a lot of the men that come from countries where it would be expected that they would work. Yeah. Um, small, small things. I, in Core Town, we're currently just finishing putting in um, cooking stations so that the families can come down and cook for themselves because you're not legally, they can't go into the industrial kitchen and your food is all provided for you. So, little things like that that they can cook their own food they can cook foods from home yeah. makes a big big difference to their mental health would you and, and that's a, really what it is yeah would you see a deterioration in people's mental health from when they arrive to let's say um, down the road or do you see an improvement I, i'm i'm kind of jumping on into the assumption here that it's um that it's, it's quite a negative way of living there's a very minuscule amount of money at their disposal they're not allowed to cook they can't really go anywhere i would imagine that would have a detrimental effect on somebody's mental health yeah i mean again you know like say in core town we do we do everything that we can it really takes very little you know um most of the people that come to us they're appreciative for everything that they get and so small small things make such a big difference to them you know just feeling like they're listened to taking the time to talk to people taking the time to sit and make sure someone understands something because in a lot of the places you know letters that come and stuff they come in their own language so they're just handed to them and if you don't understand talk deal with it and so taking that time really makes a big difference as that we we do push we we've gotten them involved in volunteer projects and and we tried to get them involved in a lot of other projects. The the, <laughs> the manager in our hotel in particular really likes to throw parties. So, <laughs> so like in our hotel, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Easter, we celebrate Eid and Ramadan. Um, any excuse, every birthday is acknowledged and celebrated, in a, even in just a small way. A few bags of crisps and a cake and a few banners, like, but, and everyone is invited down to join in, in the dining room, you know? These yeah. are things that make it, and our residents will tell you themselves, if you were to come into the hotel, our residents regularly say, we're a family here, all of us, staff, residents, volunteers, we are a family. And that, it's as simple as that, they just need to feel like somebody cares. Yeah. Just that sense of belonging, I suppose, really, and 
connection or Facebook. Unfortunately, I have seen the other side of things. As I said, we, we actually, one of my residents actually was in Mount Trenchard for a number of months. And I was still in touch with him via WhatsApp and phone and things like that. And, and I, even without seeing him, I watched his mental health deteriorate severely. Um, I mean, we're, we're talking about a hotel here that is literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, on a road that you can't really walk, it's, it's very dangerous to walk it. Um, and it is men only. There's seven men per room. Each room is separated by fours, basically. Um, so each bed is boarded into its own little cubby with a sink and a bed and a dresser. Yeah, um, it's known for breaking out in fights. It's known for being. It was known for being the the center where people who had difficulties, whether they be mental health issues or whether they be issues with aggression and causing fights, this center was known for that's where you send them to be forgotten about. Um, I have received some really disturbing pictures of floors covered in blood. Um, heard stories of literally you walk down the corridor and there's men sort of talking to themselves in the corner. Um, there was a news article, I think last year in the Irish Times, um, that you can look up yourself in it. Uh, one of the one of the residents there just couldn't take it anymore. He started smashing windows and there, there was pictures of broken glass and just everybody was sick all the time. Um, I mean. The guy that I had staying there, he estimated there was about 100 men sharing one bathroom. You're talking seven men a room, there was one bathroom per floor. It was moldy, it was dirty, it was cold all the time, and everyone was always sick. It is... And how long is the particular place still open? Is that still a direct... That actually was closed just three months ago, I think. Just before the quarantine, a month or two before the quarantine was called, Mount Trenchard was shut down. But people have been making complaints and trying to have that centre shut down for years. Well, it's, it's gone now. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. It's gone, and it was it was the worst of it. But unfortunately, there's a lot of there are a lot of places around the country that are not much better. Well, the, the picture you've painted for us today is, is quite dark, really. It, it doesn't. I mean, I, I think we all had an idea that direct provision centres were probably not the most positive of experiences for people, anyway. Um, but you, you certainly highlighted for us some of the of the inhumane conditions that people are subjected to, I suppose, really. And, and the fact that it can take up to nine or ten years for somebody to come through the system is quite disheartening. Is there right. any parting words of wisdom you would give to our social care students about direct provision? First of all, I have to apologise for how depressing the subject is. <laughs> <laughs> It's been over a year, and unfortunately, I really have very few positive stories from it. Um, For somebody who was hoping to maybe eventually or even volunteer in the direct provision centres, or maybe someday if if the government or the HSE decides to appoint social care workers, what sort of um, advice or guidance would you give to a future social care worker in the service or a future volunteer in the service? What would they need going in? First of all, I'd always say to really to think hard about it before you do it, because it is something that you cannot, 
not something you can shake off when you get at home. You know, it, it is something that's going to affect you deeply and don't expect it not to. Don't expect to be able to stay detached from it. Um, and just, just on that point, on say, Lauren, yeah, just on that point of, of um, how challenging it is, um, I would imagine that you would need somebody to uh, debrief you or to have a debriefing session with somebody or to have some sort of support, some sort of emotional support for yourself. Um, because of the challenge that you will face and the, the people's stories will be hard to hear I'm sure so looking yeah. after your own mental health would probably be a really important thing to, to be mindful of if you were definitely definitely I mean it's one of the first things that you learn in, in social in community studies when you're when we're studying it is that you need to focus on your own mental health um I know that I've had to last year when we when we had the protest when we had our residents removed we fought so hard for so long um that I I will be honest and I had to step away from the hotel and from the residents for a, a few weeks because I needed time because I was not I, w I would not have been able to give what I needed to give to new residents yeah and um, they say, and that, and that is why they don't expect to be able to walk away as much as you can stay detached a lot of the time. You know, there's so many people coming through. There's always, there's always that one person, that one family that no matter how you try and step back from it, they will get in. <laughs> they're amazing people, and they're so strong people, and they're such kind people. Even with, they have next to nothing, and they will still give you the last. I, you know, I, I, there was a lovely lady I had, and I'll always remember, I actually have a skirt that she brought from the Congo um, wow. that she insisted on giving to me. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've been dressed up in African clothing for Africa Day and all sorts, um, but um, they're amazing people, and they are worth every ounce of energy that you put into it, but you, it will take its toll on you as well. It yeah, looking, looking after yourself, looking after your own mental health is really focus great. on the small victories because the big thing when it comes to government takes so much time. Yeah, you you have to hold on to those small victories. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Lauren. That has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. No um,